Welcome to this episode of Cloud Control. I am your host, Sean Harris, and today's episode features Lori McVitie. She now works as an evangelist in the CTO's office at F5, which combines technology and strategy along with evangelizing the F5 solutions. She does as much evangelism inside the company as outside and is a combination of DevRel, developer relations, and promoting products and technologies. She joins us today where we're going to talk about cloud operations and topics like zero trust and the importance of tinkering and hacking around and exploring and remembering those concepts when it comes to our technology journey. Lori, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I've done great. Thanks for asking me to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to get somebody that has some extensive, that has seen the industry from both sides over the span of their career. I know for me, where I've been in the industry for almost 20 years, a lot has changed. And I'm sure for you, kind of coming up through the ranks of F5 and being a software engineer, you've seen a lot. How did you get into tech? And more importantly, how did that involve into cloud infrastructure and cloud operations? How did I get into tech? Um, when I was oh, maybe 13, my mother brought an Apple IIe into the house. She was, she was a, a programmer uh, for a long time. Uh, so, you know, I played with punch cards, but then she brought this Apple IIe into the house. And wow, wasn't that awesome? You could make it go beep, you know, <laughs> type in all of the hex so you could play Montezuma's Revenge. Uh, just the whole thing just fascinated me how you could you know, tell it what to do. And I started playing with basic, of course, back then. And it just kind of blossomed from there. It just made sense. This was what I wanted to do. I really enjoyed it. And so that's kind of guided me, you know, since then. How did that evolve into the cloud? I think that that's one thing that I've always been curious about for, for especially where my trajectory has been very similar. In fact, my computer was, my first computer was an Apple IIe as well. And, you know, that's, kind of what got me going, but how did you make that swap, that switch to the cloud and what was really kind of the preemptus for it? Well, I mean, that was a gradual transition, right? We went from, uh, you know, local networks to the internets and from the internets, there was, uh, they used to be called ASPs, right? Application service providers that morphed into SaaS. Uh, but the concept of hosting, right, morphed into bigger hosting, right? Yeah. Let's cloud utility. We'll sell it. It'll be easy. We'll use APIs. And it just, it kept snowballing from there. And being on the, the tech side, of course, right? Um, being involved in the, the delivery and security of applications, when applications went into the cloud, it became time to go, well, how do we fit there? What do we do there? What does that mean? Does anything really change? So it was a very gradual right? Uh, evolution right along with the internet. And I think everyone else that as cloud emerged and evolved, right? So did every other industry figure out how they fit into that model to move forward. That's, that's really true. As I, I remember having data center colos, right? And being able to go to the colo and badge in, and now I don't have to do that. I can just run infrastructure as code. Speaking of infrastructure as code, F5 has really been on the forefront of the cloud, the hybrid cloud right? The, you still have stuff on-prem, you still have stuff in the cloud, you need to connect them together. Yeah. One of the buzzwords that we've heard a lot over the last, since the beginning of the pandemic, really, when we all decided we're all working remote all of a sudden, is zero trust. 
And how to, how, see, and this is what everybody does, right? Everybody kind of rolls their eyes and goes, okay, great, zero trust. How does F5 approach, because you, your job in the field CTO, as a, as a representative of the CTO of F5, is to go and explain so, these concepts to people who might not fully understand it. And zero trust, I've been in the IT space for 25 years. How do you approach a complicated, like, zero trust and make it so that it's easy to be bite-sized and consumable in a sales call, in a sales play. And how important is it as you go and talk about cloud infrastructure going forward? Well, it's very important. I think it's um, it's coloring every conversation you have is that, right, if you're talking about API security, if you're talking about cloud, right, zero trust has to play into that, right? You can't uh, you, you can't put stuff in the cloud and on-prem and only do zero trust one place. That's not really zero trust, right? It's got to be a holistic approach. So when we talk about zero trust, we start with the, look, it's an approach, right? It's not a set of tools. You're, you're already digging too deep. Start from the back. What does zero trust mean? Well, it means zero trust. It means continually verify, uh, assume breach, there's like four principles and I can't remember them all, but it's right. It's an approach that basically says continuously assess, verify, right? Make sure that you're actually controlling who is accessing what, right? So it's matching those up. That fits with the cloud very well, because if someone's accessing your network, well, of course, right? You think, well, I can do all these different things at the network layer to control access to it. We know how to do that. Oh, you know, everyone's been doing that for a long time. Then you move up the stack and you're like, well, I put an application in the cloud. What does that mean? You still need to apply zero trust. Well, who can access it from where using what, what can they do with it and continually assess that to make sure that they're actually the person that they say they are the whole time, right? You don't want someone to hijack their session and come in and, and be someone else that that happens. So it's really an approach that kind of informs how you implement certain technologies. And those would be things from the network all the way up to, you know, dealing with how do I deliver my APIs and secure them? That needs a zero trust approach as well. No, that's and that's really true. And I think that people get hung up on the idea of zero trust being a tool suite or something that you turn on and they forget that it's a methodology much like DevOps, right? DevOps is the yeah. methodology. SRE or platform engineering is the putting that methodology into practice. Yeah. And I think we get hung up on the idea of the methodology being the practice or the outcome. And at the end of the day, we being practitioners have the ultimate goal to protect the data that our, our employers are entrusted with. And zero trust is a key to that. And I think that we get hung up on that so much and it frustrates so many people that it's good to hear broken down like that. You work with F5 again, right? Like we've talked about, you get a unique bird's eye view of the challenges and trends that may not have made it down to the practitioners yet. What are some things that you're seeing as we go get, we're almost halfway through 2023 at this point, which the older I get, the faster the year seems to go by. And it's hard to believe that we're almost halfway through at this point. What trends are you seeing that are really going to start popping on the radar in the next in, in the rest of 2023 that we should be aware of wow or challenges yeah. trends or challenges they just say ai right isn't that mm -hmm. the answer to everything right now that's well ai mm -hmm. of course is 
is the big thing. But that one is that one is popping in terms of more of awareness. We're aware of it now, uh-huh. right? Everyone knows about it, and now it's going to be time to figure out how do we actually put that to real use. Besides, you know, write my script for this podcast, which I did not do. I promise, I did not do that. Uh, <laughs> Right. It's, so we have to figure that out. But it's on top of mind for everyone, I think. And everyone should be looking into it and going, how can I apply this and where? Because it's broadly applicable everywhere. So, of course, AI. On the More on the technology side, when you look at what's going on with APIs and data and digital transformation, you see this, this architectural shift that's kind of like moving up, we'd say, the stack. Right. It's moving up past even HTTP, you're like, whatever, that's just a web thing. Let's talk about APIs and how they're the glue that pull together applications and data, and especially like object storage, which is growing big. And you start seeing things like GraphQL show up and gRPC and new protocols and new right approaches to how do we actually make this scale? Because scale is always a problem. It's part of what cloud is supposed to answer. But now you've got to scale microservices, apps, data, and APIs and try and make it all go together. So how do we do that? And we're seeing GraphQL, gRPC, AI, um, AI ops, right? As it's applied in this concept of just needing more data everywhere. So, I mean, those are kind of the, the top level that really haven't bubbled down. People aren't seeing that impact on their architectures yet, but that you know, we've got a million APIs and we only know where half of them are is going to be a significant problem in the next year or two. So it's it's really time to start thinking about how do we deal with that um, as a trend, right? It needs to be managed. Yeah, it used to be server sprawl. It used to be uh, service sprawl, right? Like we see a lot of service sprawl in the cloud. And I think that we're, you're right, we're entering into a trend of API sprawl which I don't ever think that we intended to do as practitioners or designers, right? You wrote an article at the beginning of the year that really fascinated me and is really why, um, as we were starting to plan out this podcast, it really, I really wanted to talk to you and I was really looking forward to our conversation. It was about the difference between a digital service and a digital experience. It wasn't a real long article. It wasn't like a slog. It was like one of those quick hits that you take five minutes to read, but it really talked about how digital experience and digital service, while we kind of intertwine, we tend to intertwine those two ideas. We kind of lose sight when it comes to the experience side of a digital, of a digital service. We sometimes tend to forget about the users. What are some of the best digital experiences that you've had and what made them more successful, especially at an inter- at enterprise scale? What, what what makes an elegant service or an elegant experience over a functional service? I guess that's how I word that question. Yeah, I like that distinction because there are a lot of functional services out there, but there are very few, right, like good experiences where you're like, I like this. It was easy. Um, Wow. I mean, some of the best experience, digital experiences I've had have been tied to IoT devices. Mm-hmm. And right where it's just like click, click, done. Oh, button, push this. It all just happens. It's very easy to navigate. It's quick. 
I don't need to, you know, really think about how do I get through this? It's not like navigating uh, E-Trade. Uh-huh. Good Lord, I don't understand how to get, what does all this mean? I don't know what's going on, right? My bank is the same way. Like they, they upgraded. They said, now you have digital banking instead of the mobile app I had. That was, that was huge, right? Mobile, now you have digital banking. And all they did was make it more confusing and difficult to use. So this to me, I'm having a bad experience because your design makes it too hard. And right, the IOT devices, those providers know that they have to deal with people who have absolutely no technical competency or knowledge and they have no patience, right? So they build systems that are not only functional, but easy to navigate. And that makes a great experience because you're like, oh, I don't have to, oh, that's beautiful. I mean, it's it's not like buying a printer. Have you tried to use a printer lately? No, they're just as hard as they always work. I hate printers. I, I don't, never, don't ask me to print anything. I can't. I cut my teeth in IT and, uh, and technology. My first job was at HP doing inbound technical support for the laser, the enterprise laser jetline. I hate printers to this day. Nothing ruined a printer for me. And I'm sorry, HP, because if, if I go into my story a little bit, one of my biggest goals coming out of high school and college was to work for HP. I love the idea of the HP way of managing people and managing and managing talent. But I hated working on printers, and my favorite part of that job was I ended up becoming doing security pen testing and getting into how to hack a network using a network printer, and that was fun. That that was the best part of printing was taking over a network from a printer. You wrote a book with F five CTO Greg Lin, or Jane Lin. I, mean, I hope I'm saying that right, and I'm not gonna. But it was about yeah. enterprise architecture and how it's transforming IT. How does IoT and the ubiquity of the ubiquity of connections that we have now? Everybody's got a personal computer in their pocket at all times. Everybody's got is connected in some way, be it our watches, be it our phones, be it our laptops that we lug around. How is the Internet of Things and the emerging security standards around IoT changing enterprise architecture? And what are some things that you learned while writing that book that you or that you were exposed to that you may not have thought about before that made its way in there? Wow. Well, that's the the IoT, that wave of that hyper connectedness, right? We see that as like the third wave of the internet, right? It's like this, you know, we went, okay, everybody got on the internet now. Oh my goodness, now everything is on the internet. Right. And that causes challenges for scale, as you mentioned, security, obviously, right? It's very easy. You know, you just said, right? A printer, right? You're hacking networks. Um, devices do the same thing, right? And just those connections and having to use different resources for all of the storage and, and such. Like most of the devices I have in my house to do things like monitor my fish tank. The data is actually stored and my account is actually stored somewhere in an app, probably in the cloud, but could be in a data center. But I use it locally, right, on my phone. So there's massive numbers of connections that IT has to deal with, and it has to deal with the device. Did one of the fish get angry and hack the system because it wants more food, right? Mm-hmm. I, You know, it can happen. Huh? I, they're terrible fish. So 
it, you know, you got to worry about all of the security things, which goes back to your zero trust, right? It's one of the things that's driving zero trust is there are just connections coming in from everywhere. And how do I make sure that every one of them that I accept is actually valid and should be accepted? How do I know that it's not? How do I identify it? Uh, we already have a problem with people, right? I mean, credential stuffing is a huge issue, account takeovers. We know that it's hard enough to authenticate humans, but how do you identify and authenticate devices, right? Can you manage IDs? Think about the database, right? You'd have to manage. I mean, that's incredible, but they, they must, it, it has to be in there somewhere. Um, you know, there's so many different things that could go wrong that right, it's forcing that zero trust approach, but nobody really has a good answer to, you know, how do I identify all of the things, whether they're people or software or devices, right? And how do I do that in a consistent way? And IT is challenged to do that. They need to, because otherwise someone's going to sneak through with a printer and take it over. Nuties. It's easy to hide malware on a hard drive in a printer because you didn't know your printer had a 20 gig hard drive on it, right? Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it, 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 it's fascinating, right? And so that kind of loops back around to security at the perimeter. Our internet connections are always on. And when we started in this space at home, if we had a problem, we just disconnected. Or if somebody needed to use the phone, we just disconnected. Do you think zero trust is going to, the, the idea of zero trust and the idea of figuring out how to authenticate the apps and the things that we use on a daily basis are ever going to make it down in the same way that we're approaching it at the enterprise level? Do you ever think that, do you think that zero trust will make its way down to the home user? Because home users are needing to be increasingly worried about their security as well. You mentioned apps that store your data in the cloud. How do you know that those connections are valid? How do you know that you're not just going to somebody else's random Dropbox folder or an S3 bucket? Do you think zero trust will ever get so bite-sized that it'll make its way down to the home users so that we can apply those same security principles at home as we're expected to as users at work? Eventually. I, I think we'll be retired by then, but I think eventually. If, I mean, if you look at your, you know, your, your modem and your, you know, your, your Wi-Fi, well, they, they call them routers, mm -hmm. right? Right. You're like, it's not a router. It's not, it's not a router. <laughs> right. You're going to call it that because right. simplicity, right? People don't understand. Right. But if you think about how far they've come since those days when we, right, set up a Linux box with a DSL connection and then start, right, doing all sorts of crazy networking stuff. I know it's painful, but uh, yeah, right. That's how we did it. We mm -hmm. had to do it by hand. Today, they can do it with two clicks of a button. Okay. I mean, they don't even have to know anything. They just put the things in there and go, make that happen, and it does. Right. So will we get there? Absolutely. Is it going to take time? Yes. A long time. Do you think it's going to be the industry evolving and saying, hey, we need to protect our home and, cons and pros prosumer users better, right? The people that think about security and ask their people who work in tech about it? Or do you think it's going to come from regulation and the government coming in and saying, okay, look, you guys, like they've done in the UK, right? Where they try to standardize on USB-C. And so now you look at companies that make phones that have proprietary adapters that aren't USB-C being forced to move to USB-C, right? That was not because company A wanted to do it. It was because they were forced to by the government. So do you think that information security will ever become important enough that the government of the says we need to mandate security for home and prosumer users like we do at the enterprise level? 
if that's possible. Um, I think the bigger driver is going to be the 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 long term remote right work from home mm-hmm. right. So I I work from home for twenty three years now, so it's you know it's no big deal to me. But there's right now we have a, a large contingent that is doing it more permanently right, and and people are exploring you know how can we do that for larger segments. So having Right, your part of your enterprise be in people's homes, I think is going to drive more urgency than the federal government coming in and saying you must do X. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've already started to with privacy regulations and, and all sorts of right disclosure, mm-hmm. uh, you know, regulations. Different states even have stronger uh, requirements than the, the federal government. So I think if they don't take action, yeah, I mean, the government will come in, especially if they start moving and, and doing digital right, digital money, right? If we move to a digital standard, now it becomes a federal interest to, right, make sure that everybody's, you know, secure and, and safe. So, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of different factors that play into it, but, you know, eventually they will have some kind of oversight. Um, but I think the other factors are driving it just as well. Like people are trying to make sure that that happens. They think you're totally right. And I think that that same level of regulation you, you mentioned the privacy regulations that some states have versus the government. I think you're going to start seeing that applied to AI very, very soon. And I don't think that we're ready for it. One thing that's really important to me is getting more people into the the cloud ops or the cloud practitioner yeah. space. It's- Women, people right. of color, underrepresented groups that really have a lot to offer when it comes to development of privacy and technology. How would you recommend if somebody came to you and said, Lori, I really want to get into this thing called the cloud. I see that it makes good money. I see that it's a fun place to be. And I hear people talk about it. What tips would you give for somebody who wanted to join the cloud and start that career path? And what certifications do you think are important for those people to get from your perspective, working in in the converged networking world? So I think experience is always the best teacher uh-huh. and all of the major cloud providers offer right free a free tier where you can go in and do things and i think that's actually like one of the best ways to get into it is to go explore it mess it up right figure out what went wrong because you're going to understand how to do it better and just start playing with it and start following tutorials and working through it um because you know, people say, well, you know, do you need a degree or not, right? That's always the debate for, for comp side. You know, do you need to have a, a degree? Um, because honestly, most of us have had on-the-job training since we left college. Yes, we got the basics, right? I have a good understanding of all sorts of things like architecture and compiler theory, right? Security engineering and whatever. But most of it's been on the job. The languages I program in today were not even available or thought of when I was in college. So you, you know, learning through trial and error example, pull code. There's a lot of great code in, uh, you know, started repos that you can walk through, that you can install it, you can play with it, that gets you into it and lets you figure out, you know, what do I want to do? How, how do I do it? You know, what's, what's going on? Um, certifications. Well, I have exactly one certification to my name. It is uh, Java 1.1. And uh, I did that because I was bored one summer. Uh, but the, <laughs> I've never, 
I'd never gone and done the CCIE, the CCNA, the this, the that. Um, I'd never put a lot of SPAC in certifications just because, right, I just, mm -hmm. I never have the time to study for them. And, you know, they change so fast right now. Um, and which cloud would you get then, right? And there's an AWS certified, there's an Azure certified, there's probably a group. Which one? Because yep. they're all different, yep. right? That's part of what's causing so much complexity today. So. I wouldn't even know where to begin it. I'd say, go play with all of them, figure out which one you like, or maybe you like them all and just get those skills so that you can right, advance and make yourself useful. Well, I think that brings, uh, that's the reason I ask that question is because people ask me all the time, what certification should I get? I want to do what you do. And I say, I, I, I tell them the same thing. And I don't think that we hear that enough that go explore, go experiment. This is what got us on our career paths, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't get my career path because I chose computer science. I got on my career path because my parents brought home a computer and I started playing on it and I formatted it. And my parents said, Gary, you get to put it back together. I didn't know that I had formatted it, but that's really the true story. I tried to format a floppy drive and I ended up formatting the entire C drive because I learned how to use a boot disk, right? And, and so it's that level of tinkering and exploration. And my dad, who was an auto mechanic, said the same thing. He never went to school. He never... he. He went into the military and just started tinkering on engines as a kid. And it turned into a lifelong career um, where it was fixing engines and he had zero formal training. And so I think we get hung up on the degree. I think we get hung up on the certifications that are becoming more and more popular. Sure, there are base certifications that explain the concepts, but you should explore and you should tinker and we should get back. We should use cloud ops as that low barrier to entry to go and format a computer because guess what? Infrastructure is code. And can you imagine if we had had that topic of infrastructure as code in the late eighties, early nineties, right? That idea of, Hey, you can stand up everything using this script. You were no, that right. Yeah. And, that's huge. Right. And that evolution is really where the cloud has evolved from. It was, I like to think it was all these nerds that came up alongside of us that figured out how to make things work because they hacked around and that's great. Part of your role is advocating for F5 and evangelizing F5, right? That's really what a field CTO does. And I think people don't hear the ter term field CTO. So walk us through what it's like to be a field CTO at F5. And then what is the importance of community and advocacy in that space where you're advocating for a product and building a community around the F5 technology? Wow. So... I mean, a lot of my time is spent looking at the market and understanding what's going on, what trends are happening, right? Uh -huh. What is What does it mean that APIs are getting so important? I mean, anybody can say that, but what does that mean, right? And then trying to figure out, right, how is that going to impact applications and how is that then going to impact F5's business and what we do, right? How does that change? What do we need to look at? Those kinds of things. And then... Uh, you know, writing about a lot of the trends that are happening and what's going on and how that relates to perhaps something that F5 can solve, right? Not all challenges can be solved by F5, and I'm happy to write about the ones that we can and the ones that we can't because you still need to be aware of them, right? There is, there's no one vendor anymore that can solve everything. There's not. It's just gotten too big, too complex, too distributed. Everybody's got pieces of the puzzle. And so you want to be able to say, you know, we can fit in X and Y and Z, but for A, you know, you're going to need somebody else. Yep. It's just the way. So I spend a lot of time advocating that way, um, just for awareness, for education, 
um, early on, I was very active in the uh, in Deb Central, which was really our community, and we called it that because a lot of what we did was, uh, I mean, it was development, but in right real time, right? You were writing code that intercepted traffic and manipulated packet level and and right session. I was. It was awesome. The things you could do with it uh, were, you know, and still are uh, fascinating. So a lot of time just sharing ideas like here's how to solve this problem or, hey, here's a neat trick you can do that might solve a problem I don't know you have. Um, and just advocating for that and then going out and speaking about it as much as you can. So it's really more being able to make connections between, you know, something out there, a challenge or a trend and tying it back to what you actually do or sell so that you can right? Make that, bring awareness to the market, I guess, is that while educating people. No, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we've, we've kind of had a very tech heavy conversation. I want to get into, as we, as we get closer to the end here, I want to wrap up with some, some questions about you and you personally. So just so that people get to, because I think it's important that we talk about the, the humans behind the keyboard when we talk, because we've talked we talk with cool people from cool companies that do lots of cool tech, but I think that we lose the humanity behind the practitioner, the, the engineers, right? We talk, we can nerd out for hours on engineering, but I think it's cool that we get to know each other. You wrote that book that I mentioned earlier, the, the trans, how, um, enterprise architecture for digital business is transforming IT. What was it like to write a book like that? And, not that you learn anything new technically, but what did you learn about yourself as you wrote that book, as you were writing that content and going through the process? So it was a collaborative effort. So it was it was really one of the first times I've written other books, but always by myself. It's uh-huh. very easy when you do it yourself. But when you're trying to uh, herd cats right <laughs> into, because these are all, you know, highly respected, very great technical, uh, you know, fellow engineers and architects who were helping, they each wrote a different chapter. So, right, trying to get threads through that, right, and learning how to do that, how to both interact with people to encourage them um, to bring out, right, their ideas. I think that's that's an incredible thing to be able to do is sit and talk to someone and, and get them to express what they want to express because of course engineers sometimes we don't know how to talk right <laughs> to to just anybody we know how to do it really technically but just saying the words can be difficult so learning how to how to get each of those different people and those personalities to be able to get the words in a way that makes it sound like the whole book is like consistent and written by at least similar people uh, was a fascinating experience and i learned how to kind of do that in more of a, a mentoring way rather than, you know, I'm a mom, I've got four kids, so I'm used to going, no, do it that way. That's it, right? You know, you can't do that when you work with people. You right. have to right, find different ways. So I learned a lot about how to do that, right? How to mm-hmm. work with a, a group and pull them out. So I guess more leadership type skills, I would say. That's awesome. If you weren't in tech, if your parents hadn't brought home that Apple IIe, what would you be doing? What would your career be? A uh, night manager at Taco Bell. Why that is it? It's my dream job. Um, Go reach for I, the stars, Lori. Reach for the stars. 
<laughs> hey, pre-teen ghost. Um, I think I probably would have uh, I've gone into teaching of, of some kind. That's awesome. Because that's part of part of my role now, right? That education piece. I love explaining a complex topic to someone and watching their eyes light up when they get it. I mean, that's just like the most incredible thing. Like I'm, I'm, I did a thing today. That's mm -hmm. awesome. No, so thank you for done that. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk oh. cheese. One of the things yeah. that Ryan yeah. mentioned is that you love cheese. I am a fellow cheese lover. What cheese should I put on my next charcuterie platter that I haven't thought of? And what wine should I pair it with? Well, see, I'm from Wisconsin, so you, you pair cheese with beer. Sorry. Um, I also <laughs> accurate. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, I usually like a good, like, nine-year-aged white cheddar. Oh. Um, ten years even better. But nine is nine doesn't bite you back quite as hard. Right. And you need a, a nice dessert wine actually goes well because they are so bitter. Right. It's like they're awesome, but they melt in your mouth and it's just and the crystals. The texture is awesome. I mean, it's I love a really aged uh, cheddar cheese or fresh cheese curds. And I do mean fresh. If they've been in the refrigerator, you are wrong. You should throw them away. You need to go get them fresh so that they squeak. They don't squeak. They're not they're real. Nice. That's right. I, I grew up in North Idaho and I lived right at the intersection of two major universities that both had great dairy programs, Washington State University and the University of Idaho. And every time I go back, I go on over to Washington State's uh, creamery and get some of their, their squeaky cheese and their aged cheese. And it's just how oh, it, it's the best. I'll have to send you some Cougar Gold if you've never had it. I'll I'll, I'll get I'll, we'll yeah. connect and I will send you a can of Cougar Gold. What do you do in your downtime? What, like what, you shut off your computer. What do you what, what do you find yourself doing? You said you're the mom of four kids, but I'm sure there's more to you than that. What do you do in your downtime? What is this? Turn off your computer. You mentioned. Um, I play a lot of tabletop role playing games. So uh -huh. big D and D fan. Really. Um, video games. Yeah. Yeah, I try to touch grass once in a while because my youngest tells me I need to. <laughs> Apparently, it's bad if you don't do that because it implies you're playing too many <laughs> video games. Uh, rating, I mean, you know, just, you know, dealing with a teenager. The other, my other three are out of the house. They're grown up, so I don't have to deal with them. But then I get to play grandma, which is fun sometimes in downtime. But the last one's still in the house, so he's learning to drive. And, yeah. you know, so there's a lot of terror. I practice like... <laughs> that base um a lot and uh and otherwise just try you know play a lot of games enjoy listen to music nice. right that kind of thing what's uh what's a concert that you're looking forward to <laughs> now that concerts are back to semi-normal what's a concert you're looking forward to there are none i haven't but i think the last <laughs> i i haven't seen any all of my favorites are dying i mean it's really sad uh -huh. i you know so um, and I don't listen to, I don't listen to what's what's out there right now, right? I've gotten to the age where I'm like, no, man, nope. I'm, I'm putting on Metallica and just cranking her up to 11 because you don't know what music is. Uh, so, I mean, if they showed up like close, I'd probably go see them again because it's been a while. Yep. Uh, but, you know, otherwise like, ah, too old for that, I guess. <laughs> PlayStation or Xbox for your video game console? Um, right now, primarily Xbox. What game? What games are you playing? Um, been playing uh, Warframe. 
<laughs> off and on. It's kind of grindy at this point and it's irritating me. Um, and a lot of Fortnite with my grandson and my nephews. That that sounds that sounds like it would be a lot of fun. It's good. I like the shooter game. Lori, it's been such a pleasure talking and getting to know you and kind of hear your thoughts on the cloud on the state of the cloud industry right now. Anything that you think that we should any closing thoughts that you want to leave us with or things that you think we should know that we didn't cover? No, I mean, you know, other than like, yeah, tech is, I love what you say about just go back, tinker, play, um, you know, just go do it. Anybody can learn. And, you know, the resources out there are, man, we had those resources, right? When we were younger, we'd been hacking more than printers, man. I tell you. Uh, so just, you know, go out there. If you're interested, go figure it out. You can't do it wrong. So, you know, try it. Isn't that the truth? Lori, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you and getting to know you and look forward to seeing what's next for you and F5 as we go through the rest of 2023. This has been Cloud Control presented by Spot by NetApp. I'm your host, Sean Harris, Developer Relations Lead at Spot. If you want to give us feedback, topics, or even guest ideas from folks in the cloud ops space that you want to hear from, you can email us at cloudcontrolpodcast at protonmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at InkedTater. A special thank you to Spot by NetApp for helping produce and distribute this podcast. If you would like more information on how our cloud ops portfolio can help you and your team be more successful and begin your automation and financial management journeys, please visit our website at https spot.io. Thanks again for listening. Without you, this is just me speaking into the cloud. And until next time, we will see you in the cloud.